Ah, oh, good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. <laughs> Backyard professor style. Got my hair in the rat race, don't I? Hey, uh, I have done something really very interesting this morning that I want to share with you. I think it's a, uh, a delightful thing to do every now and then, and I don't do this near enough, but I intend on doing it a lot more. And uh, that is to go out and view the beautiful sunrise. Uh, wake up early enough that I can enjoy seeing the sun being born again from that goes back into hoary antiquity thousands of years ago to the ancient Egyptians when Ray, the sun god, enters his boat and takes a ride across the sky, which boat, incidentally, was the goal of all peoples because that gave them immortality in the boat of life, which is beautifully and absolutely perfectly illustrated by the heavenly symbol of our sun. So I want to try something here. Good morning, everybody. I took a video of the sunrise. Let me see if I can share it with you. Good enough that you can see it. I'm going to try like crazy to do this correctly. Let me see if I can do this. Sorry for the sorry for the uh, funky funky start, but let me see if I can get this on. I think you will enjoy this immensely. Oh, come on. Come on. Get high enough. Oh, that reflection is going to be bad, isn't it? It is. That's going to reflect. Okay, hold on. I want to do this for you because it's so beautiful. I may just have to hold this silly thing. Let me uh, let me try to get this bent properly. The sunrise. I did it over the world famous. Uh, man, I need a dark background. Oh my gosh, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to remember that. Yeah, you can't see it, can you? Criminy, my video. <laughs> oh, that sucks. Let me see if I can find a, yeah, I'm going to have to do a, a backdrop. Next time I do this, I will do a backdrop. That's too bad. Doggone it. I wanted to show this to you really bad. Oh, no sound again. Hold on. I know what to do. I'll be right back. Okay, is that better? Can you hear me now? I had a few people say no sound. 
play it anyway. I've got sound impaired. Okay, other sheep. Hey, Abby Hayes. Rocket Man, good to see you. Uh, Rocket Man, you might have to adjust your volume because mine's fine. Michael Brandon, good, fine business operator. Yeah, it is your end. Um, yeah, tell him. Sorry. Okay. Let me see if I can. I am really disappointed. I'm going to uh I'm gonna do something very unorthodox, which shouldn't surprise anybody. I'm gonna I'm gonna let me shut off the lights. That might help me to uh be able to get you this video. It's a beautiful video. Hey, that's better. That's a lot better. Yeah, let me shut out the lights. There we go. Now let me show you this sunrise. This is a beautiful sunrise. Trouble is, I, I now won't be able to read anything. And I will touch the screen so that you can see the sunrise. Golly, I don't know why it reflects. Yes, I do. Oh, that just sucks. It's reflecting the... There we go. Let me see if I can do it this way. Oh, we're talking amateur hour. I know. I need to just get my technology straightened out. I'm well aware of that. So the idea here was I woke up really extra early this morning and I was trying to, again, enjoy the beauty of the world because so many times we just take it all for granted, right? And so I said, well, I'm not going to take it for granted. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to look at the world and enjoy the world. And this is at a very, very world famous place. The uh, South Fork, there we go. There's the sun peeking up. That's this morning sunrise. And I realized that we take advantage of the world far too often and we don't stop and look. And sometimes it's okay to take a few minutes and see just what is going on. Now, here I pan in this beautiful setting, and you're going to love this. And so this is the South Fork of the Snake River. It's a world-famous fishing area. And it's absolutely gorgeous out here. There's the peaks and there's the river. I have floated this river several times. Well, a few times. Caught good fish in it. I should have been a floater more than not. But then you see the peaks just getting the sun. So. That's this morning's sunrise where the sun says, hey, I want to fly in the sky. And all of us are very, very happy. Hey, Abby Hayes, you were raised near the Snake River. Yes, it is. It is a gorgeous river. And there's the sun. So we have started our day correctly. That's how it works. Let me turn on the lights. Sunrise is over. We have now acquired. I'm going to figure out a way to do this. Maybe I need to put a piece of black tape across the top or something. Who knows? Anyway, what I need to do is upgrade my technology. 
<laughs> so there's your sunrise. All right. Uh, now, here's the idea. Here's the idea. And this is in, in again, this spiritual literacy, reading the sacred in everyday life. There's something to that. Uh, yes, we know that life is, boy, we know that life is uh, rough. We know that it's secular and blasé, and sometimes it's boring. However, if we can learn how to just shift our perspective a little bit, it acquires a new experience. It is exciting to wake up every single day. Now, believe it or not, that is literally true. And, and so here are some of the ways that I want to share with you some ideas to, today. Seen as belonging there with other native things, my own nativeness began a renewal of meaning. meaning. The sense of belonging began to turn around. And so what this gentleman says is, if I see that I actually belonged in my environment, if it belonged to me, a man might own a whole country and yet be a stranger in it, right? That's interesting, isn't it? If I belonged in this place, it was because I belonged to it. I love how Alan Watts expresses this idea that because of the basic in the West, in the West now, because of the basic tradition that we've been raised in, we have this sense of being a stranger in the world, a pilgrim. This is not our home. We come into the world as strangers. But actually, we come out of the world and we belong to it and it belongs to us rekindling uh this perspective changing our skewing our mind just a little bit differently we can pick up this idea this theme that what a beautiful place and what a great place to be and it is my home. Now, granted, on the cosmological scale, you couldn't see us if you had a space telescope the size of the one we just threw up there last year if you were 10 feet from us because we're so minuscule on the cosmological scale. We're less than a speck of dust, but that has nothing to do with the fundamental ground reality that... Uh, this is our home. It is beautiful to us, and it belongs to us. And the good news is we belong to it. I think this is the principle that this gentleman is trying to say. I began to understand that so long as I did not know the place fully or even adequately, I belonged to it only partially. So I said, what I did see that summer uh, I began to dimly see that one of my ambitions, perhaps my governing ambition, was to belong fully to this place. To belong as the thrushes and belong as the herons, the muskrats, the mountains, the flowers, the bees, 
the uh, the beetles, the insects, the hawks, the clouds, the trees, the mountains, to belong to it. But now I've come to see that it proposes an enormous labor on my part. And, and this is the key. It does impose a labor on our part to learn how to belong, of course. But it is a labor of love, not disastrous misery. And it is, as he says, a spiritual ambition, like, like goodness. See, the wild creatures belong to the place by nature. But as a man, I can belong to it only by understanding and by virtue. It is an ambition I cannot hope to succeed in wholly, but I've come to believe that it is most worthy of all. I like that. That's Wendell Berry in his Recollected Essays, 1965 to 1980. I kind of rather like that. Uh, that approach, that theme, that view. So uh hope hope everybody's doing good. Hope everyone can hear me now. Oh, Doug Vincent. <laughs> you don't have to, you know, it is going to be recorded so you can listen to it. Here's a little ditty from the idea of importance that I want to share with you from Alan Watts in his uh Become What You Are. And I love the title of that because there's a little bit of a, ooh, kind of jolt you, doesn't it? Yes, become what you are. That's the theme. Now, Buddhism, as a religion, this is often accused of being a religion that is so absorbed um, in, the, in the impersonal end of things. And the eternal, that it overlooks the importance of the individual and of temporal things. So forget this life. It's all worry about the eternities, etc. That seems to be one of the principal bothers about Buddhism, we'll say. According to his teachings, all things that have form are subject to change and void of any enduring self. Now, Quite frankly, when we really do look at the cosmos, have you ever seen that? There's a video, and I, I can't, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but there's a video on YouTube of showing two entire galaxies colliding. And it is spectacular. I believe it is a computer simulation based upon the mathematics of the, you know, you got the gravitational density, the speed and all that jazz. But it shows this idea. Everything is changing, whether out there or on our planet or in our solar system. You know, we just recently went through the Lenian, Lenian meteorite shower. And those meteorites that went through are not the same meteorites. And now that they've gone through our atmosphere and we're able to see them, that changes them. They won't be the same size or shape for next time around either. Things like that. All things change. Now, see, scientifically, this is the law of entropy. All things break down. That's just, that's the basic fact of it, man. So he says the... The form is subject to change. However, this does not imply that that form or other such things are unimportant 
See, this is this would be a this would be a false equivalency. Uh, importance does not necessarily equate to permanence, and vice versa. Unimportance does not necessarily equate to change. That that's kind of an interesting key here. So, change is a symptom of the presence of life. Very well put. And a Japanese poem says this. It says, the morning glory blooms for an hour, yet it differs not at heart from the giant pine, which lives 1,000 years. Now, it's a real interesting comparison contrast here. So we, we're seeing the immensity of of space and time. And we, because of that absolutely breathtaking immensity that you actually really can't comprehend very well, we think that we are most insignificant. We get that impression. On the cosmological scale, we are a speck of dust so small, you almost need a microscope to see us. That's how insignificant. If you value size, the bigger the better. But that may be entirely irrelevant to the significance of that one piece of dust out there in the cosmos. So let's keep looking at this. Well, in comparison with the vastly complicated problems in the modern world, the lesser hopes and fears of the individual seem... Of, actually, truly, no consequence whatsoever. It doesn't matter if you trip down your shoelace. Who gives a flying flip? I mean, even, even the fly buzzing around your head doesn't give a flip about your shoelace or you tripping, right? So to speak. But Buddhism is the middle way. When, when we have a situation of lesser hopes and fears of the individual, Buddhism is a middle way, and it must necessarily regard such an extreme attitude as false philosophy. And why, though? So it's well that one who is too much concerned with his own affairs should consider the immensity of the universe and the destiny of the human race. This is a good thing. In other words, it helps give us perspective to go outside every now and then and not only watch a sunrise like I tried to share with you this morning, this morning's sunrise, but to look out at night over the immensity of the sky and the stars. This can be a good thing to do. But let him not consider it too long lest he forget that the responsibility, not only for human prosperity, but also for the order of the universe, is his own. While modern astronomy tells us of our own insignificance beneath the stars, it also, it also tells us that if we lift so much as a finger, we affect them. Now, it's true that we are transient, that we have no abiding self, but the fabric of life is such that one broken thread may work immeasurable ruin. The magnitude of the world with whose destiny we are bound up 
increases rather than diminishes our importance. Now, that's a cool little view here. Nature may seem to have little regard for individuals. It may let them die in millions as if it matters nothing. But value is in quality, not quantity. Very, very interesting there. A P may be as round as the world, for instance, but as far as roundness is concerned, neither really is better than the other. And man is in himself a little universe. We are called a microcosm. The ordering of his mind and his body is as complex as the ordering of the stars. So can we say then that the governing of a man's universe is less important because it is different in size? Which is more important? The little finger or the foot? which in size is a lot, lot bigger than the little finger, but it depends on the task, doesn't it? Can one really say, well, I'm so important in you, you're really kind of trivial. Would you say that to any part of our bodies? No, no, we would not. There would be no reason to. So this is quite interesting. And again, on a little bit different angle and yet kind of tying in with this, fundamental to the yin-yang symbolism is the sense of the world as a system of transformation. Maybe that's why this is here. Maybe this is why we are here. The whole point is for transformation, not a permanent static situation where we have finally arrived at the end, so many times we focus way too hard on that concept rather than understanding it is the journey that makes it all. That's, that's a very, we have to be reminded of this, or rather we ought to be reminded of this because of its signal importance if for nothing else, for our own psychology and good. This is really the importance of the passage. Yin and yang are respectively, now you know the yin-yang symbol of the, of the uh, Chinese. These are respectively like the troughs and peaks of a wave system. The S-curve dividing the yin-yang circle suggests a kind of a whiplash or a peristaltic motion, a continuous undulation, not only of life and death, day and night, but of one living form into another. Certain germs falling upon the water become duckweed. When they reach the junction of the land and the water, they become lichen. Spreading up the bank, they become the dog-tooth violet. Reaching rich soil, they become wutsu, and we can't exactly translate that word, but they use it. The meaning is unknown. This wutsu is the root of which becomes grubs. While the leaves become butterflies or crabs, these are changed into insects. 
These are born in the chimney corner, which look like skeletons. After a thousand days, it becomes a bird called Khan Ayuku. Again, the translation is not technically available. We're not quite sure what that means. The spittle of the Khan Yuku, of which becomes the Susumi, the Susumi becomes a wine fly. The Chiingning insect produces the leopard, which produces the horse, which produces man. Then man goes back to the germ from which all things come and to which all things return. Now, this is a Chinese version, a story form, which they teach each other, not for its literal truths, but for something vastly more important than biological or chemical correctness. We literal Western minders really don't get this as well as we could or ought to. Ever differing in form, this undulation back and forth out of something and into something else, and then disintegrating, and then arising again in a completely different place in the world, in a completely different chemical form, and then rising, changing, growing, transforming, and then back and forth. There's an undulation back and forth, up and down, forward, backward, whatever the undulation you picture in your mind, the principle is a single process, not of life and death, but of life-death. It's a singular process, not of up and down, as if they're separate, but of up-down. It is a process and a wisdom, at least in the Chinese, Taoist, and Buddhist philosophies, this consists in realizing the basic identity of the two. In the words of Chongzu, life follows upon death. Death is the beginning of life. Who knows when the end is reached? If then life and death are but conservative or consecutive states, what need have I to complain? Therefore, all things are one. What we love is animation. What we hate is corruption. But corruption in its turn becomes animation, and animation once more becomes corruption. Therefore, it has been said that the world is permeated by a single vital fluid, and they do teach us this in the martial arts, the chi. And the sages accordingly value its unity. Very well put. That, that, that's kind of interesting. And then finally, one. Now, I'm going to this is somewhat of a uh, a disparate, kind of a non-connected <laughs> idea. And I'm going to let you 
find ways to connect that previous thought that I just read to you with this thought here. And this is Alan Watts' experience, his, his theme, and this is in his book, uh, Cloud Hidden, Whereabouts Unknown, a Mountain Journal, one of my very favorite Alan Watts books. I've wore it out. It's, it's broke up. I've retaped it 10 times. I was taping on it this morning. The more pages I turn, the more that fall out. So I have to tape them back in so I don't lose any. Was Jesus a freak? That's the question. Now, his experience here is quite remarkable. And I think his insight is very fresh in that uh, in our society, probably not as much today as it was when I was much more younger, uh, 50 years ago, this was pretty, uh, this was pretty stiff stuff here where Jesus was only allowed to be viewed in a certain manner. And there had become a, what I will call an orthodox crust <laughs> that uh, got stamped onto everyone's minds, just like the matrix I talked about last week, in order to always arrive at the only correct interpretation of Jesus. We have truly been arguing for millennia about this topic. I thought the insight here was exquisite. And so I wish to share this with you too, because, and we shall see how it parallels and gets put together with some of these others if you just stop and think about it. So, okay, a few days ago, I gave a ride to a rather pleasant hippie couple who seemed to have no particular destination. I asked, what trip are you on? And he said, like, spiritual trip? <laughs> and I said, yes. And so he said, well, we're on the Jesus trip. Who's Jesus, I asked, Billy Graham's or mine? Well, it's all sort of the same, isn't it? He asked Alan Watts, and he said, it is not. For Billy Graham follows a long tradition, both Catholic and Protestant, wherein the gospel or the good news of Jesus has been eclipsed and perverted by pedestalization. They've elevated him up on a pedestal, and it completely wipes out his message of what he meant by kicking him upstairs and by kicking Jesus upstairs on this pedestal. They were able to get him out of the way so that they could present their own view of Jesus instead of Jesus's view of Jesus. <laughs> That's fascinating, isn't it? So let's keep going here. So what ended up happening is following a religion about Jesus instead of following the religion of Jesus. And there truly is a significant difference. So obviously, Jesus was not a man. He was a result of making Jesus Christ his personal Savior. The religion of Jesus was that he knew he was a son of God. And the phrase son of means of the nature 
of. So that a son of God is an individual who realizes that he is and always has been one with God. I and my father are one. I mean, that's the famous John 17 chapter, right? Well, when Jesus spoke those words, the crowd took up stones to stone him. Shocking. And he said, well, I've shown you many good works uh, from the Father, actually. And for which of them do you stone me? And they said, oh, no, we're not stoning you for any of your good works at all, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, you're making yourself God. And he replied, but isn't it written in your law that I have said you are gods? And uh, if he addressed those to whom he gave his words as gods, and you can't contradict the scriptures, how can you say that I blaspheme because I say I am a son of God? But the self-styled Christians and especially the fundamentalist bibliolaters, they always insist that Jesus was the only son of woman who was also the son of God. And so they call upon all the rest of us to follow the example of the one human freak who had the unique advantage of being the boss's son. See, this is not a gospel. It is a chronic hang-up. It is a self-frustrating guilt trip. It is an exhibit of isolating the career of Jesus in a glass case for worship, but not for use. So it's obvious to any informed student of the history and psychology of religion that Jesus was one of many who had an intense experience of cosmic consciousness, of the vivid realization that oneself is a manifestation of the eternal energy of the entire universe, the basic I am. But see, it's very hard to express this experience when the only religious imagery at your disposal conceives that I am as an all-knowing, an all-powerful monarch, autocrat, and a beneficent tyrant enthroned in the court of adoring subjects. In such a cultural context such as that, you cannot say, I am God, without being accused of subversion, insubordination, megalomania, arrogance, even blasphemy. Yet, that is why Jesus was crucified. See, in India, people would have laughed and they would have rejoiced with Jesus because Hindus know that we are all God in disguise. We're playing hide-and-seek with himself. Their model of the universe is not based on the political states of the Egyptians or the Chaldeans or the Persians, whose awesome dictatorships hold sway through the Jewish, the Christian, and Islamic religions, even in the Republic of the United States. In Hinduism, the whole universe 
is like the Holy Trinity. One is many, and many is one. And of course, the Hindus are the despised of the earth, having been reduced to utter poverty by the Muslims and the Christians. But Jesus had to speak through a public address system, uh, the only one available actually to him, which distorted his words so that they came forth as the bombastic claim to be the one and the only appearance of the Christ, of the incarnation of God as man. Well, this is not the good news. The good news is that if Jesus could realize his identity with God, then you can also. But this God does not have to be idolized as an imperious monarch with a royal court of angels and ministers. God as the love which moves the sun and the other stars is something much more inward, much more intimate and mysterious in the sense of being too close to be seen as an object. So it turns out, alas, that our new breed of Jesus freaks are following the old non-gospel of the freaky Jesus, of the bizarre man who was unnaturally born and whose corpse was weirdly reanimated for a space trip into heaven. One can, of course, interpret these ancient images in a more profound and non-literal way, to be sure, as I tried to show in my book, Beyond Theology. But to identify Jesus the man as the one and the only historical incarnation of a divinity considered as the royal, imperial, and militant Jehovah is only to reinforce the pestiferous arrogance of, quote, white, unquote, Christianity, with all of the cruel self-righteousness of its missionary zeal. Well, they may perhaps be forgiven for their ignorance, and today, when we are exposed to all the riches of the earth's varying cultures and religions, there is no further excuse for the parochial fanaticisms of spiritual in-groups. We have to graduate beyond the sixth grade level of thinking in our culture, spiritually and religiously. Jesus freaks are still in a state of enthusiastic innocence, as yet unaware of the frightful implications of their claims, but they must realize that uh, Christianity would seem ever so much more valid if they would stop insisting on being an oddity. Only in recognizing that Jesus is one particular instance and expression of a wisdom which was also, if differently, realized in the Buddha, in Lao Tzu, and in such modern avatars as Ramana Maharishi, Ramakrishna, and perhaps Aurobindo and Inayat Khan. I could make a very long list. This wisdom is that none of us are brief islands of existence. 
but we are forms and expressions of one and the same eternal I am. This eternal I am is simply waving in different ways, such that whenever this is realized to be the case, we wave more harmoniously with the other waves here on earth. Christians who so often affect prickly and astringent attitudes may cluck and push-tush that this is all very imprecise, vague, woolly, sentimental, claptrap, right? But in the harsh clacking of their disciplined voices, their accurate distinctions and precise calculations. I hear the rattle of rifle bolts and the clicking of heels like a mighty army moves the church of God. But that is no way for a gentleman. I, I think that's a very interesting take. With no disrespect thrown at Jesus, but a context with which situates Jesus in a worldwide cultural affluence that is harmonious and loving and all-encompassing instead of exclusivist, militaristic, arrogant, and blasphemous. And I'm not going to lie to you. I believe this is one of the reasons why I just find such great appeal to the various ideas, materials, authors coming from the East into the West and showing us a comparison contrast, giving us the true values of our Western culture, which we don't appreciate and the true values of the Eastern cultures, which, again, ironically, we don't appreciate, we as a culture have somehow begun to descend on a slide down into a lacking appreciation for a lot which we should put on the screeching brakes and say, wait a minute, am I really grateful? Do I appreciate this wonderful air I'm able to breathe? Well, if you're strangled for just five minutes, and that's not very long time, uh, you'll realize the most important thing to your life is that air that we completely take for granted. If the sun were to go out, you will die. End of discussion. You'll have exactly eight minutes before the last sunbeam strikes the earth. Its distance is eight light minutes away from us. And you won't know what hit you because space itself is real close to absolute zero. It's many, many hundreds of degrees 
below zero, it's not like you'll have time, if that happens, to hurry up and go book them over to the closet and grab your winter coat and put it on and be okay. No, that's not how it works. So my intent, my hope, and I'll do this periodically from time to time in a lot of my videos, is I want to help us become more aware of and enjoy everything that we experience, which of course means that I will be refreshing us. I will be reminding us. I will be somewhat in one way or another, repeating some things so that we can begin to make it a not an only pattern, but we begin to focus more on the pattern of gratitude, the pattern of personal integrity, because we do understand or we are beginning to, instead of sliding down the hill into apathy, we are beginning to understand our individual quality is seriously valuable. And that uplifts our souls and spirits. And for Pete's sake, that's how life gets to be better if it's not. And that's how life stays and helps improve the goodness. We have five senses that we always take advantage of. And yet life every day, I'm not kidding, life every day can be seen as sacramental. And I don't mean that in an organized religious view, but I mean that in the essential cosmological view, our lives are sacramental in the respect that we do consume part of the universe daily in fluids, solids, flavors, one of our senses from our taste buds, visual, the beautiful colors, the suppleness of the fruit, the beauty of the yellow squash vegetables, the delicious smell of a well-cooked steak on the grill. My mouth is watering talking about vegetables and steak. Because as we participate with the universe in this manner, it flows into us and it flows out of us, just like we on this planet, as it rotates on its axis, as it revolves around the sun in our solar system, and as the entire sun in this small branch of a, of a galaxy, the Milky Way, is also whirling out there, not only is the universe flowing in and through us, we are literally flowing in and through the universe because just like the Chinese understood, yes, they got the biology wrong. For hell's sake, 
drop the literal ridiculous short-sighted view for a minute and understand the value, the glory, the great idea here. The Chinese were trying to teach us that it is all one process and we're not separate from it. We are that process and that can be taken literally because it's literal. My wife mentioned something to me this morning. I'll show you how literal it is. She said, man, your elbow is really starting to get brown. And I go, huh? <laughs> she goes, man, your elbow is really starting to get brown. When you check it out with the rest of my arm, she's not kidding. What do you think that brown is? That brown is the direct result of the sunlight striking my skin. And I am absorbing the sun where I'm exposed. That's literal. I become part of the sun as it becomes part of me. That's not mystical woo-woo. That's true reality. There's a flow and a give and a take. And this is the idea of the opposite. There, for real, there is always a flow, you guys, of when describing a coin. Doesn't matter what coin, you guys. It's irrelevant. Here I've got a quarter. There's always a flow of opposites from the head to the tail. You can't get rid of one without ruining the essence of the coin. It does. It's flat, but it has two sides. My finger up here is on one side. My thumb underneath is on the other. And there's always two sides. There is a flow. There is a process of up and down. There is a process of in and out. To have in and out, you truly have to have the foreground and the background and realize that they're really not different. They're the same thing. They're just on poles. But that is a polar reality that has both parts in, out, up, down, hot, cold, heads, tails. Basic stuff. Dead, alive. An ocean wave is never only of crests, or it's not a wave, right? You must have the crest, and you must have the trough for the complete wave to be real. It is a coincidentia 
oppositorum. It is the coincidences of opposites. We are not alive as opposed to being dead. We are alive dead. It all goes together. One does not stop where the other begins and vice versa. Where does it begin? Who can say? So that's kind of the fun stuff uh, that I love to delve into, and it makes for a good Sunday school. So anyway, I've been going for 50 minutes. Thank you all for attending. Thank you for the likes. Don't forget that I also have an announcement to make while so many of you are here, truly. Backyardprofessor.org. This week, I have uploaded all of my Book of Abraham materials with the Joseph Smith papyri, with the various apologists' information, Kerry Moolstein, John Gee, Michael Dennis Roach, Hugh Nibley, etc. And I have also discussed the significance of the Egyptologists' reactions, the Robert Rittners, the Brent Metcalfs, the Dan Vogels, the Paul Osborns, the Carrie Schertzes. We, I have given full elaboration of the hieroglyphics in relation to the papyri, in relation to the Book of Abraham. I have discussed the concept of the astronomy of facsimile number two with the whole context within the Book of Abraham, etc. All of that is now on the backyardprofessor.org podcast site. You don't have the video there, you're able to listen to it while you're doing your yard work, while you're watering your garden, while you're making the beds or cleaning the house or taking a hike or walking or whatever you're doing, shopping, walking through the mall, wherever you are, driving your car on a road trip for 400 miles, and it's going to bore the living snot out of you no more because you have excellent listening materials on the backyardprofessor.org. And if you would be so kind, Drop me a small donation or a large one. I don't care. You can do a daily, a weekly, a monthly, an annual. It does not matter. Just whatever you can do is just fine by me. I'm not asking you for 10% of your gross income. <laughs> I promise. If you would like to donate that, that is entirely at your discretion. I will not be holding private interviews with you behind closed doors to see if you are fully caught up on your donations. So don't worry about any of that noise. Yeah, the backyardprofessor.org, I'm going to be uploading uh, several more podcasts either tonight after my show at six tonight, which I will be doing, or um, sometime uh, tomorrow, you're going to have many new podcasts. And I am back into podcasting big time, and it is a ball, and there is an enormous amount of information for you to enjoy and absorb. So it'll help make your time go by faster and you'll be building your brain as well as your hearts, as well as your muscles. So I mean, it doesn't get better than that, right? Okay, you guys, I'm going to head out. I'm going to go prepare for tonight's fireside tonight, six o'clock mountain time. Be here if you can, and uh, I will have a whopping good, cool stuff to share with you. In the meantime, have a good afternoon or morning, wherever you are, or night, wherever you are. And I will see you tonight at 6 o'clock. Be good, do well, have fun, be friends, make friends, and come back 
at six o'clock tonight.